that baby in the background worshiping. Something tells me that that's how our songs sound to God, is the cries of his children um, as pure and as honest as that. So I, I think it's music to his ears. I'm so grateful to get to gather with you this morning. Happy summer. Um, I know that some of our kids are already uh, having, enjoying summer. We got to have our first summer barbecue uh, down at the beach, or not barbecue, but summer bonfire down at the beach, and it was wonderful. For those of you who made it, we had a great time. We had uh, fire breathers show up at, at one of the places next to us. They wouldn't let me try it out, which was a bummer. Um, we, it was funny, you know, so over the last month and a half or so, we've been talking about neighboring, which is this idea that we, the church, when we get outside of the walls of the church, are planted in our spheres of influence for a reason. And as we love on our neighbors, last week, in fact, we talked about uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, seek the peace and the shalom of the city to which I have called you. Pray to the Lord for it, for as it experiences shalom, you will experience shalom. This is what we talked about. And this idea that as we seek to care for the people around us, it actually blesses us. And we got a really good picture of that on Friday night. Because uh, Josh showed up to, to secure a fire ring at 6.30 in the morning to make sure that we had exactly the right ring for us, the one that we'd used all last year. And so people start showing up around 4.30 or 5, kind of like how most people start showing up to church around 10.15, 10.20, you know. Um, doesn't matter if it starts at 4, we'll show up when we show up. So anyway, we were getting there around 4.30 or 5 o'clock, and by 5.30 or so, we, were, we had a pretty ruckus crowd. And then a lady shows up and says, hey, by the way, I reserved this ring. I paid for it. I have a, I have a, a graduation party. I need you guys to, to leave. We're going, I didn't even know you could do this, but apparently you can. So in the meantime, there was this group that was in the fire ring next to us that they were all hanging out down there and they had forgotten to bring a football and we happened to have a football. They said, can we borrow your football? And it turned into a huge football um, game down the beach. And as they're watching all of this happen, they come back over and goes, dude, I'm so sorry about this. They throw the football back. I go, oh, no worries hey, do you mind if we borrow your fire ring and, and kind of join in with you? And they're like, ah, no problem. You were cool with us. We'll be cool with you. So we ended up getting to join in to the ring next to us. As you seek the shalom of the people around you, you too will experience shalom. It's just it, whatever you have. And it was beautiful because they didn't bring a lot of firewood. We had a lot of firewood. But they happened to have a fire ring. They didn't have food. We had a lot of pizza. <laughs> it worked out. Everybody was happy. Anyway, and nobody was burned, which is even better. So we will be doing fires, uh, bonfires down at the beach two more times. It's the second Friday of the month. So the next one coming up here is second Friday of July. I hope that you'll join us. Also, we are doing a couple of other things this summer. We're going to be doing the fourth Sunday of the month. We're going to be going over to the park this next it's not this next coming Sunday, which is Father's Day. Everybody remember it's Father's Day. Make sure that you I don't know, what do you do for fathers anyway? Like Mother's Day, you have to think about it. Father's Day, hey, Dad, thanks. <laughs> or let them sleep in. That's what you do. You give dads a nap. That's all they really want. Um, and then the following Sunday, we will be going down to Harper Park. We're going to be hanging out, having a, a church picnic, playing a little ultimate Frisbee for those of you who are interested. Um, I hope that you can make that. I do want to let you know about one um, family business thing, and that is 
this earlier this week, um, our brother Don Dickey went to go be with the Lord, and so he is out of pain. I know that Darlene, his wife, and Freddie are here, and we just we are grateful that you've shared your Freddie, your father, with us, Darlene, your husband, with us. Ninety-three years old, lived a good life, lived a long life, and now he and Merv and Gene and the whole crew, right? They're they're having a a Newport Harbor reunion up there. But we're grateful for him. We will be doing a memorial service. Yeah, you can clap. That's fine. We're going to be having a memorial service, I believe, the first Saturday of July. So we will give you more information as timing and all of that kind of gets solidified. But we just wanted you to know. With that, um, back last year, back in November, as I was thinking towards 2022... I start, every year I start praying like, God, what is going to be the focus? What's going to be the theme that will run through the through line for the next year? And there was a word that kept coming back to me. And this word was worship. And the idea here is that we were created to worship something. Everybody, regardless of whether they believe in a higher power or not, everybody worships something. The question is, what are you worshiping and how is it shaping your life? And so I wanted us to lean into, I really felt compelled that we needed to lean into this idea that we were created to worship our King. And so my plan was to begin a series in January that would run for a couple of months on this topic of worship, exploring what it means to live as fully committed worshipers of Jesus. And by the way, I will tell you, worship and discipleship are pretty much synonymous in my mind, and I'll explain more about that in coming weeks. But then my friend, Jeannie, comes in my office and says, hey, you know what? It, the world kind of feels like it's coming to an end, and there's a lot of people who are clamoring for it. I think it would be a really good idea if we do a series in Revelation, to which I summarily said, ah, that's not going to happen. Um, and, and then the Holy Spirit said, oh, you're going to start speaking for me out of turn without me telling you, okay, let's teach this young pastor some humility. So as you know, if you've been around, we did a series in Revelation for the first few months of um, the year, and it was wonderful. It was really surprising to me because I went into it thinking that it was a crystal ball that helps you figure out, you know, if you can just peek in there, John is like the first century version of Nostradamus, telling us how we can avoid pain and suffering. In reality, what I found is it is a book from start to finish about worship. It is a book written by a pastor to the community that God has entrusted to his care, reminding them, keep your eyes on your king. Remember that he is still in control, even though it feels like the world around you is going nuts. Don't take your eyes off of your king, because we know how it's going to end. And that's the message of Revelation in a nutshell, and it was a book about worship, and so I'm really grateful for that detour. But today we get to start this series that I've been thinking about for about seven months. It's a series on worship. Now when I say the word worship, what comes to mind? Singing. I hear singing a lot, and I would agree, like that's the first word that comes to mind for me is singing. But that's just a sliver of what worship really is. You don't have to take my word for it. In fact, I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. I want to make the point this morning that worship is much more than just singing songs, although that is a piece of it. 
Worship is everything that we do as an act of response to who God is and what he's doing in our lives. Our worship is a response to our king. So in, in Romans chapter 12, Paul is writing to believers in Rome, the vast majority of them being Gentile, meaning they didn't, they weren't raised in Judaism, they were not part of the in crowd, if you will, and yet what Paul has just gotten finished saying is God has lavished his mercy and his grace upon you, and by the way, don't be upset or don't be surprised when he turns around and does the same thing to the Jews. For a time, they have been disconnected from the vine so that you, a wild vine, could be grafted in. But don't be surprised when he shows the same mercy and grace to them. And then out of that, this is what he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship or your spiritual act of worship. Think about that for a moment. Your spiritual or your true and proper worship is not just singing a song between 10 and 11.30 on a Sunday morning. Your true and proper or your spiritual act of worship is offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. Jesus, you died for me, so I will choose to live for you. That is my response. And by the way, what does it flow out of? It is not something that we do as a prerequisite to earn God's love, it comes as a response to God's love. In view of his mercy, we respond by offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. We lean in, we learn what it looks like to live as his ambassadors of hope. That's worship. What I want us to get, and we're just going to tease the edges of it today, and we're going to dive deeper into it in the coming weeks. What I want you to hear here is that worship is not simply songs. That's a piece of it. But worship can look like the way you treat your kids. Worship can look like the way you interact with your spouse. Worship can look like the way you respond to an irritating neighbor or somebody on social media. You can worship God in a sanctuary on a Sunday morning, but you can also worship God in your shower. You can worship God in a life group during the week, or you can also worship God in the car on the way to work. You can even worship God at work. You can worship him not simply by singing songs. You can worship him by the way you choose to work, giving it your whole heart as if you were serving the Lord, even in your job. You grandparents, those of you who are retired, you can worship the Lord your God in the way that you lean into investing into the next generation. Worship is radically more than just singing songs. Worship is every response in our life, and it is all a reflection of or a response to the love that God has lavished upon us. And I, I will tell you that worship is the difference between having a religion and a relationship. And this is really key. Because we call ourselves Christian. 
We treat Christianity as a religion, but the reality is it is not a religion. Religion is dry and crusty and dead. Religion is just a whole bunch of rules that we have to try to keep. A relationship is radically different. A relationship is living and active. It's a give and take. And what you have been invited into is a relationship with God, not a religion. And worship is the distinctive factor. Let me explain how this works. A religion basically says, here are the rules. These are the things you need to do in order to be worthy of being called a child of God, in order to be called righteous, in order to earn your standing with God, you've got to do certain things. So start climbing. A relationship says you are already here. You are already loved. You are already accepted. You are already considered, because of what your God has done, you are already considered enough. So, in response, worship. And you might do exactly the same thing. But when you do it for a religious motivation, it totally changes the outcome than when you do it as a response to God. I show up at church because I have to. Because I'm required to be here. Ugh, I don't want to. I stayed up late last night. I'm tired. It's summer. It's beautiful outside. I'd rather be at the beach. But oh, I'm going to come and show up anyway. Versus Oh my goodness, my God is so good. What a beautiful day he's given me. I really want to go and spend time with my, my community, worshiping God together. Same result, different motivation, different results. I got to give a certain percentage of my income every month to the church. I don't want to, but I have to, because that's what's required. And you do it grudgingly, and you're frustrated. And when, when, you don't, you know, when, when you don't have enough to go on that trip to Hawaii because, well, ah, you know, if only I didn't have to give. Versus everything I have is a gift from God and he has been so good to me. And I give because I want to as a declaration that my trust is in him, not in my money, not in my stuff. And I find that when I give, I feel liberated same action, different motivation, radically different results. That person makes me so mad. But God says I have to turn the other cheeks. I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to like it. Versus, God has been so gracious to me, and he has forgiven me, and I am going to, he has loved me, so I'm going to, I'm going to respond by loving somebody else who's pretty stinking unlovable, but I know how that is because I'm pretty stinking unlovable. Do you see that you can do the same action, but if you're coming from a motivation of religion, it will lead to resentment, frustration, irritation, and ultimately burnout. There's a lot of people who have tried to pursue God out of a sense of religious obligation and it has worn them out. Many of them no longer show up on Sunday morning. Many of them no longer call themselves followers of God. That religion didn't work for them. And it makes sense. No religion ever typically works. Not for long. 
You can gut it out for a little bit. But eventually, if you are pursuing God as kind of a religious structure to trying to climb your way into his good graces, man, that is a broken stairway to heaven, and it will never get you where you want to go. But if you recognize that your creator and sustainer made you for relationship with himself and is inviting you to walk with him. I mean, you, you, wanna, you want proof that your God loves you? Just look at the cross. The cross is a tangible reminder to us that we didn't earn it. We couldn't earn it. But you didn't have to. Worship becomes our response. Whereas religion says, do these things and you will be loved, A relationship says you are loved. So everything you do becomes a response to it. And I would call our response, whatever that looks like, worship. Okay, so that's defining our terms here. And over the coming next couple of months, we are going to unpack this idea of living as fully committed worshipers of God who worship not just between 10 and 11.30 on a Sunday morning, but worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even in our sleep. Even in our play, even in in whatever you happen to be doing, do it all as unto the Lord as an act of worship, as a response to how good he has been to you. So that's what we're going to be doing, and we'll dive deeper into this and tease it out more. But today I want to start, I think it would be helpful for us to start by defining the relationship. Has anybody ever had a DTR in a relationship, right? Like you're starting to hang out with somebody, you're, you're, get, you're feeling some feels, and you're not quite sure where you're at, so then you have the DTR, the define the relationship conversation. Gentlemen, I know that you dreaded those. Ladies, you were like, when can we get to it? Let's have a DTR with God. Let's define this relationship. And over the next couple of weeks, actually, we're going to spend some time unpacking who are you to God and who is he to you? And how does your perception of him ultimately affect the way that you approach him? But today I want to start our DTR with a question. Do you want to be used by God? Do you want to be used by God? Think about that for a moment. But before you answer, let me ask you a slightly different question. Do you want to be used by your spouse? (laughs) Do you want to be used by your friends? Do you want to be used by your boss? I think at this point, all of us are saying, no, actually, no, I don't want to be used. And I would agree. Like, I'm inclined to say I want to be used by God. I use that language all the time. But I would never use that language for anybody else in my life. In fact, I don't want to be used by anybody, but we regularly use this language with God, and I will tell you guys, it affects us. You might be going, Eric, you're splitting hairs, and maybe I am. Maybe I am. But I'm married to a marriage and family therapist who reminds me often that our words matter because our words shape our perception. And talking about being used by the one who made us in his image affects the way we view him and affects the way we view ourselves in relationship to him. And I would suggest it does not 
it is not a helpful way that it, it shapes that. It's, in fact, I would say it is, it is caustic to the way that you view and interact with God for a few reasons. The first reason why thinking of ourselves or, or longing to be used by God, using that terminology, is unhelpful is it's because it's completely impersonal. It turns you, at least from your perception, into a kind of tool that God has fashioned, given lots of different functions and giftings and all that kind of stuff, but he has fashioned to be used for a project, whatever that project is. We don't know what the project is, but he knows. And so we sit back and we wait for him to pick us up out of the toolbox to be used on whatever project he deems fit. But the problem is, if we are simply a tool that he can pick up and use at will, what if, we, what if we're flawed in some way? I'll, I'll be the first to say I'm flawed, right? I'll be the first to say I'm not a perfectly functioning tool. So, so what if I'm not just right for the job? Or what if, hypothetically, there's somebody that's better suited for the job? I think we will always find that there's always a better tool for the job. And if that's the case, then what does that mean for us? Does that just mean that when we are not the right fit for the job or we are not the, that, that there's a better tool that he could use that he's just going to let us sit and gather dust in the cosmic toolbox of life? Talk about performance anxiety. You better be right. You better be good. You better do everything right. Otherwise, he won't use you. He'll use someone else. That's exhausting. It is for freedom that we have been saved, not for a sense of religious anxiety where we have to just keep trying harder and harder. So the first reason why looking at ourselves as tools, longing to be used by God as unhelpful language, is it because it makes it incredibly impersonal, as if you're nothing but a means to an end for the one that created you. And I would suggest you're more than that. The second reason that looking at ourselves as tools longing to be used by God as unhelpful thinking or unhelpful language is because it, it implies a sense of passive or passivity, right? Like you are simply sitting back waiting to be picked up and used. But from the very first pages of Scripture, we see that God did not create humanity simply to be passive voiceless tools. If that's what he wanted, he, he could have created us without free will. He could have created us as robots. Robots do what they are programmed to do. Do you know what robots cannot do? They can't love, exactly. Robots can't love. All robots can do is what they were programmed and designed to do. Do you ever wonder why the, the creator and sustainer of life, who is a God of love, after creating this good world that he created and populating it, not only with fish and birds and animals, but with humanity created in his image, do you ever wonder why he would choose to place a tree in his good garden that was off limits? Why would he do that? I mean, if he knows everything, if he knows the beginning from the end, or if he knows the end from the beginning, why on earth would a God who knows the carnage 
that a tree that is off limits could cause, why would he put it there? That doesn't feel very good to me. That feels like a bait and switch. Except, by placing the tree in the garden, what he was giving his image bearers the ability to do is choose. Choose to trust him or not to trust him. Choose to lean in or not to lean in. Choose to, choose to follow him and obey him or not to obey him. And we know how it plays out. We know that they choose poorly, and we are suffering the consequences. But let's just be honest. If it wasn't them, it would have been us. So I'm thankful somebody else took the fall for us because we are all, we all have this bent in us who think that we can do it better than God. I would suggest to you that God chose to put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden and call it off limits, not because he wanted us to fail, but because he wanted relationship with us. In order to be able to have a relationship, you need to have the other party capable of choosing not to be in relationship. And he felt that even though he knew the carnage it would create, he felt that free will was worth the pain. His pain and our pain. And what this reminds me is that God was not looking for us, his image bearers, to be tools. He was looking for co-laborers. He wasn't interested in having peons. He wanted partners who could join him in the process of nurturing and cultivating and shaping this good world into something that brought shalom into something that reflected his heart. So when we think of ourselves simply as tools, not only is it impersonal, but it treats us like we are nothing more than slaves, nothing more than a tool to do his bidding, but he doesn't want that. He wants partners and co-laborers to join him in it. The third reason why tr treating ourselves like tools is unhelpful is because it implies that our performance determines our value to God, right? How you do determines whether or not he loves you, whether or not he's proud of you, whether or not you are useful to him, valuable to him. And I would imagine that there are some of you in here this morning who that's exactly how you view God. That's exactly how you view yourself in relationship to God. Your standing with him is determined by how well you do. But thank God that's not true. Don't take my word for it. Look at the gospel. The gospel declares that the God of the universe was not willing to let his wayward prodigal image bearers simply languish and die in the toolbox of, that he calls earth that was corrupted by sin and shame and guilt, that he wasn't willing to just give up on us. In fact, the message of Scripture is that he pursues his wayward image bearers going to great lengths and finally, when he realizes that all of his other representatives are falling short of reflecting the true heart of his love for us, he sends Jesus, 
God, that the, the word of God through which he had spoken the world into existence that took on flesh and entered into our reality and dwelt among us. And ultimately, not only did he represent the heart of God perfectly, the only one in all of creation who's done it, but he walked to the cross. And there is no more powerful picture of how deeply your Father in heaven loves you than the cross. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love to us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still running in our rebellion, Christ died for us. Long before we ever took a step towards him, he had already taken a leap towards us and said, I love you, come home. Long before we had ever bent a knee and said, Jesus, I, I, God, I give up. I, I'm, I can't be the captain of my own ship. I'm a terrible captain. Jesus had already gone to the cross and allowed his hands to be nailed so that he could say, I love you this much. Right? That's the message of the gospel. It's not the whole message of the gospel. In a couple of weeks, we'll unpack the second half of the gospel. But the, the primary message of the gospel is you are loved. Not if you do these things, you will be loved. You are loved. So not only does treating ourselves as tools imply that our value is determined by our ability to do what, whatever, you know, if, I, I, if I'm a ratchet, I better be a really good ratchet. Or if I'm a hammer, I probably am a hammer because I just, you know, smash. Um, and I'm more like a, a sledgehammer. D, you are too, so don't laugh, okay? <laughs> Thankfully, God gave us our wives who are framing hammers. They're much better at putting things back together, which is a good thing. But we each, you know, thinking of ourselves like that means that I, you know, there's this sense of if I'm not good at this, God won't use me. But look at the message of Scripture. Look at, if you just read the Bible, look at the myriad men and women that God used who were anything but perfect. I mean, they were far from perfect. Take Adam and Eve. Created in God's image, literally got to walk in the garden with him, face to face, got to do life together. The moment that another voice shows up and says, hey, maybe he doesn't have your best interest in mind, and maybe this that he told you not to touch, that could give you exactly what he's been withholding from you. The moment that happens, they run to that tree and they eat of its fruit, and they introduce sin and shame into God's good creation. And yet, they are still our ancestors. We still bear the DNA that flows all the way from them. They're still our forefathers. Take Moses, murderer, right? He killed a slave driver in a moment of anger. Then he gets scared that he's going to get in trouble, so he runs away to the desert where he basically takes, you know, he, he's, he's taking care of, of sheep out in, the, out in the desert when God shows up and says, hey, I'm not done with you yet. I want you to go back and I want you to tell Moses to let my people go. And he goes, ah, no, I'm not your guy, Okay. My brother Aaron would be a much better choice than me. And God goes, no, I'm, I'm going to be sending you. 
I want you to join me in this. Not only was he a murderer who was afraid that God couldn't possibly use him, but he was one that God invited to join him in releasing his people from captivity. Take Rahab. Rahab was a Gentile. She wasn't Jewish. Not only was she a Gentile, but she was a prostitute. And she was somebody that God invited to help his redemptive purposes of bringing his people into the promised land. And if you happen to read through the genealogy of Jesus's you know, for his ancestors marked out in Matthew chapter 1, you will find that Rahab is one of three women that is referred to. This Gentile prostitute is one of Jesus' great, 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 great grandmothers. Well, let's go to the New Testament. For, oh, no, actually, let's not. Let's stay with one more. How about David? King David, a man after God's own heart, right? Adulterer. Then when he gets caught, or might get caught, he tries to cover it up. And when that doesn't work, he has one of his mighty men, one of his closest friends, killed in battle so that he can try to cover it up. And yet, and yet, God not only invited David, this imperfect man, to be the, the king of Israel, but he calls him a man after his own heart. We're going to actually explore King David's life and how it pertains to our life at the men's retreat in October. Gentlemen, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that conversation or those conversations. I hope that you will join me in that. I think there's a lot we can learn. Um, but let's go to New Testament for a moment. Matthew, a tax collector, a traitor to his own people, taking money from them, giving it to the Roman occupiers, and keeping some extra for himself. And somebody that Jesus looked at and looked past his momentary choices and says, I want you to follow me. I want you to learn from me. I want you to be one of my disciples. I want you to be able to share the good news of the gospel that is going to be really good news to you and other tax collectors, Matthew. And I want you to share it with other people who are just as far, or feel just as far away from the heart of God as you do. And he ended up writing the first of the gospels. Or Peter, right? Like, you look at Peter. Washed out of seminary. Ended up having to go back and do work with his dad. He was a fisherman. He was, he was a big talker. Jesus, I will never deny you. I will never turn my back on you. That night, he denies him, not once, but three times, right? Peter is a very man. I see so much of myself in him. And Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends and was one of the pillars upon which the early church was built. He was a radically imperfect man. And you hear the grace and the compassion that flows out of that, if you were to read the letters that he writes, First and Second Peter, like so much of that is born out of the heart of a man who knows, I don't deserve grace, but grace has been lavished upon me. The point is, 
God does not simply use us if we are perfect and if we are the best tool for the job. God has a way of inviting imperfect image bearers to join him in what he's doing, regardless of whether we're capable of doing it or not. We're often very incapable of doing the very things he asked us to do, and yet he says, I'm enough. Hold my hand, trust me, and watch what happens. Makes me think of my boys. Two little image bearers that take a whole lot after. I, I wish they took more after their mom. Because I'm exhausting as I'm learning. As I'm, as I'm raising too many me's. Like, I am exhausting. Now I've got two more. Both of them with ADHD. Both of them with very strong personalities. Ethan is 13. Grayson is 10. I love them to death. I often invite them to join me in whatever task I'm doing. Whether that's washing the cars or, you know, doing the, the yard work or helping a neighbor I invite them to join me. But I don't do it because I need their help. It actually is way more work having them join me. I don't do it because they can do a better job than me. Quite honestly, I can do a much better job by myself. So why the heck do I keep banging my head against that wall and inviting them, sometimes demanding, most of the time demanding, that they join me in doing that? For a couple of reasons. One, because I love them and I want to be near them. But two, the second reason is because I am trying to train them up in the way they should go. I want them to develop similar values that, that shape my life, that have been impressed upon me. The value of serving others in considering others better than yourself in, in, in service. The value of responsibility of saying, hey, if you see a need, don't just walk on by and wait and expect somebody else to do it. You do it. And do it to the best of your ability. The value of if you start a task, finish the task. And in fact, finish it now. Don't procrastinate and, and think to yourself, oh, I'll, I'll get to it when I get to it. Most importantly, the value of being a kind human being who says, what do I have the ability to do? I'm going to do it to make this world a place that is dripping with shalom to the best of my ability. That's what I'm trying to train up in my kids. It is a headache for me as a parent to invite them into that, but it's worth it. And I would suggest that when our Father in Heaven looks at us and invites us into the tasks that He is doing, into the redemptive work that He is doing all around us, and He is working all around us. He chooses to invite us into it for a couple of reasons. One, because He loves you and actually wants to spend time with you. And secondly, because he wants to cultivate in you the ability to reflect his heart into this world. Does God invite us to help him because he needs our help? Heck no. 
Does he need us because we can do a better job of it than he could? Absolutely not. He's God. He'll do a much better job than us. And yet he chooses to invite imperfect, often immature, image bearers to walk alongside of him and join him in the redemptive work that he is doing. And thank God he does. The point I'm trying to get at this morning is that you are not a tool. I hope that that blesses you. I hope that that realization that you're not just some hammer or, or, or screwdriver or, or whatever, you know, sitting in some t- toolbox that God may or may not pull out and use and then throw back in the toolbox and forget about. You are something far greater to him. You are his image bearer. You are his son or his daughter. He loves you more than you could possibly fathom. And don't believe me, just look at the cross to remind yourself. And he is not grabbing arbitrarily, using and throwing back in. He is inviting us to join him in what he is doing. And there is a lot of hurting people around us. And he is inviting us who are ourselves hurting people, who are ourselves experiencing loneliness and isolation, who are ourselves scared as we look at the course of history and the moment of history we find ourselves in and are nervous in some way. He's inviting us in the midst of the messiness to join him in moving towards other hurting, lonely, scared people. The difference is we come as one who is holding on to the hand of our Father. And so when we reach out, we don't reach out as people who have no stability. We have hope. We're gripping his hand with white knuckles. And he invites us to reach out to other scared image bearers who don't know their value. And to point them back. Remember, we can't save anybody. You parents, you can't save your kids. You grandparents, you can't save your kids or your grandchildren. Those of you with neighbors that you love and care about, you cannot save them. You cannot be a savior to them. I don't care how long you've been sober, you can't save somebody who is overwhelmed with alcoholism. You know what you can do? You can walk alongside of them and you can point them to the one who can save them. You were not called to be someone's savior. You were called to be someone's friend, called to be someone's brother or sister, called to come alongside another and point them to the only one who has proven time and time again that he can redeem irredeemable things, that he can breathe life into dead bones. Thank God he does. This morning, I hope that this reminder, and it might be splitting hairs, but I think it's an important distinction. You're not a tool. You are a co-laborer of the living God. He doesn't want to use you. He wants to work with you. He wants to do so in relationship. And that means that you're a co-laborer, not a tool. And what, what this ultimately will drive us towards, I hope, is to worship, that we will respond. 
in wanting to worship Him with song, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, but not just in song. I hope that it will drive us to want to respond to Him by, by loving unlovable people because we, in the midst of our unlovableness, have been loved. I hope that it will drive us to move towards the messy areas of the world in our own spheres of influence. Because the God of the universe came off of His throne and entered into our mess and moved towards us. Every single thing we do, if it is prompted as a response to what God has done and who He is in our lives and who we are to Him, everything we do is an act of worship. And I hope that we will choose to worship not because we have to, that's religion thinking, but because we get to. Because He loves us enough to care that our songs, that our actions, that even the way we use or invest our money, all of it is a declaration of his image bearers, of their gratitude to him. And it blesses his heart. So now, Lighthouse, my, my family, let's enter into a time of worshiping our creator and our sustainer, not because we have to, but because we get to. Let's worship together. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You spirit is within me because you died and rose again I'm forgiven because you were forsaken I'm accepted you were condemned I'm alive and well your spirit
my brothers and my sisters. I'm so grateful that we get to be family. I'm grateful uh, for the ways that our loving Father puts up with us and invites us to join him in what he's doing. I want to remind you that next week is Father's Day, and I think it's a first. I'm actually going to do a message specifically celebrating fatherhood, specifically our Father God in heaven. And so for those of you I know, that father, I, I know that Mother's and Father's Day can be a really painful time. And I, I think next week might be kind of liberating. I'm looking forward to it. And so I look forward to getting to worship with you. But let me remind you now, as we leave the box and the church now goes into the city, let me leave you with a reminder of what you are commissioned to do. Therefore, I urge you, my brothers and my sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him. Let that be your spiritual act of worship that as you leave here and you go grab lunch, interact with your server as an act of worship. Interact with one another as an act of worship. As you go home and you enter into a house that's not clean and you're, you, you are tempted to look at your spouse and say, come on, I thought you said you were going to get on. Interact with your spouse or your children as an act of worship. Give grace as you have received grace. As you interact with your neighbors, many of them are people that you might not have chosen to live in proximity to you. Interact with them as an act of worship. May you go and live for Jesus because he was willing to die for you. I love you. I'm really grateful to be on this adventure with you. I'll see you next week. Have a great week.